Good morning. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11. Kids in the Bibles that we've given you, that is on page 897 and 898. <clears throat> we'll be in John 11, 1 through 44. Throughout this Advent season, as Pastor Kyle has said we've been considering who Jesus is by looking at John's I am statements in his gospel. Jesus is God, and then we considered Jesus is the bread of life, or Jesus feeds us. Last week, we considered Jesus as our shepherd. And today, we think about Jesus as our life. We're focusing uh, on this because I mean, th this is a, uh, uh, an important one. They're all important, but this in stands out because this is his last public miracle um, of his ministry. This is the last thing he did before he went to Jerusalem. And so <clears throat> he's on to Jerusalem. He's, he's on his way there for his final time. And it's important that he uh, teaches his disciples and all who follow him why he's going. And so um, let's read verses 1 through 16. And then we'll talk about it. This is God's word. John 11, 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her, and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. This is God's word. There's a lot going on here. We obviously, Jesus had a close relationship with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He'd been with them before. We learned from verse two that this is the Mary that anoints Jesus with uh, precious ointment and she wipes his feet with her hair. That will be recorded in the next chapter in John 12. <clears throat> and it is this event that, that is the final straw for the disciples, the final straw for Judas as he 
leaves that uh, indignant. He leaves that episode indignant and goes and sells out Jesus to the chief priest. Things are crescendoing toward the cross in the Gospel of John. The tension is building here. We aren't sure where Jesus is, but assumedly he's about a day's journey away from Bethany. And Bethany is about two miles from Jerusalem. And so a messenger comes to Jesus and his disciples and says, uh, for Mary, sent for Mary and Martha and says, Hey, he whom you love is ill. And so obviously this is a close relationship if you can refer to Lazarus as he whom you love. Um, and so we learn two things about Jesus' reaction to the messenger's news. The first thing we learn is in verse 4 where it says this illness will not lead to death, but rather it's for the glory of God and that the Son of glory may be glorified through it. Son of God may be glorified through it. And then we have this confusing language in 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now this seems like a very cold-blooded thing to do. But the reality of the situation is that more than likely Lazarus has already died. Lazarus has already died by the time the messenger comes. As a matter of fact, Lazarus had probably died right after the messenger left. We, can, <clears throat> we, we know from this that he stayed two days longer and we see um, in verse 17 that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days and so if it takes a day for the messenger to come, Jesus waits two days and then Jesus leaves and goes back, that's how we get to the four days. And so Jesus knows more than the messenger does in this situation. And the messenger's news is old. Lazarus isn't sick. Lazarus has died. But Jesus says to the messenger and his disciples that this illness will not lead to death, but rather it's happened to the glory of God. Well, the messenger heads back to Mary and Martha with the news, with this message, and he finds out that Lazarus has already died. So then Jesus tells his disciples, okay, now let's go back. Let's go back to Bethany. Bethany, let's go back to Judea. Judea, Bethany and Jerusalem are part of Judea. And the disciples are indignant to this. They're like, are you crazy? Last time we were there, they just tried to stone you. Don't go back there. Save yourselves. Save us. Let's live to see another day. And Jesus instead says, look, our friend Lazarus is asleep. And they go, okay, well, if he's asleep, then let's don't go back. He's going to wake up. He's fine. He's like, no, 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 he's dead. And I'm glad I wasn't there. I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe, so that you may learn something from this. And I'm not sure if this is sarcastic, sarcasm or bravado, but the disciple Thomas says, let us go also that we may die with him. They failed to recognize that Jesus had set his face toward Jerusalem for a purpose. It's lost on them in spite of Jesus frequently telling them what must, first, what must come to pass. But before we leave this section, let's understand clearly that Jesus already intends to raise Lazarus. We see it in verse 4 when he says... Um, um, this illness will not lead to death. We also see um, 
that um, our friend, I'm going to awaken him uh, in verse 11. So, and then we'll also see it in verse 23 coming up. But Jesus isn't going to Bethany to bless a good friend. That's not why he's doing this. He's going so that all who hear of this work and see it may know him better and may better understand why Jesus came. If he was after healing only, he didn't need to go back. He healed the centurion's uh, uh, son from afar, servant from afar. He did not need to go back. But Jesus is after something much greater. And it's so that his loved ones and his disciples, whom he loves, may believe. But believe what? Let's read in verse 17 through 27. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Jesus arrives and Lazarus has been dead four days. This is important because the Jewish rabbis believe that, um, that this, the soul of the person hovered around the dead body for three days, looking for an opportunity to enter back into the body to give life. And it, would only be and it would only leave when it recognized a bodily or physical change in the body, when the body starts to rot or decay, and then the spirit would move on. I mean, it just seems really weird, but that's what they, that's what they believed. And so four days has passed. And so Lazarus was considered to be, to be by the Jews, dead, dead, beyond hope dead at this point. Martha hears that Jesus is coming, and so she goes out to meet him and says, if you had been here, my, my brother would not have died. Mary will say the exact same words in the next section in verse 32. But Martha follows that up with, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So this is worth thinking about a little bit. What's behind what Martha said? Is this rebuke is Martha and Mary or Martha and Mary rebuking Jesus like we heard from the messenger that you thought that he was not going to die and we also heard that you waited two days to come like look at how much we love you and this is the way you treat us I don't believe so I don't believe that's what's happening here I believe that these are words of faith words of faith in spite of what's happened like I believe in you and I still know that if you had been and I still know that if you had been here, I know that you would not have let this happen. I understand that. 
And even now, and this even now, I know whatever you ask from God, he'll give you. I don't think that Martha's going, but I know there's still hope because you could ask right now and you could raise him. I don't think that's what she's got in mind because we're going to see here later that she's kind of given up hope on this. Now she's looking toward the resurrection. And when Jesus does it, um, by um, coming uh, later on in verse 38 or uh, 39, uh, 39, when Jesus says, take the stone away, Martha's like, look, you don't want to do that. This body, you don't want to do that. Just leave it alone. And so that's not what she's got in mind. So we wondered earlier what Jesus wants them to believe or what does Jesus want them to understand. Throughout this passage, we, we see um, uh, references to Jesus, if you had been here, or Jesus is coming, or when, G- when Martha heard that Jesus came, there's like 14 references to place, to presence, or to coming, or if you had been here, or who has come. So Jesus came to Bethany, but the question for us here is why did Jesus come? Not just to Bethany, but why did Jesus come to earth? Why did Jesus come? Did Jesus come to protect us from pain and suffering and difficulty? That seems to be the idea behind Mary and Martha's comments, that that's why Jesus came. You would have done something about this, Jesus, if you had been here. And I know that if you ask God for something, he'll give it to you. So we find fault with our Catholic friends in their prayers to the Virgin Mary and the saints. And they think, well, they're in good with God. Mary is Jesus's mother. And so if she asks for something, we know he'll do it. Well, here it seems like that they think of Jesus the same way. Jesus, we know if you ask, God's going to do it. He's going to take care of it. So if you had been here, we know that this, we would not be in this boat. Do we think of the Christian life in a similar way? Do we view the Christian life as nothing but a series of close calls? Of fearful, hair-raising threats that Jesus protects us, ultimately protect us from? It's like, is it like we're living in a fun house or a thrill ride or a haunted house where life is just a series of near misses? It looks like we're doomed and then at the last minute we're snatched away from and crisis is reverted and averted and we're saved. Or maybe we think that Christ, this crisis can't get any worse, but then it does get worse. And then it gets a little bit more worse and we go, oh, this is it. And then, oh, we're saved. Yay. We just drop further into danger, but God seemingly gets, it out, gets us out of it time after time. Or maybe we don't think of the Christian life negatively this way, but we see it as like one of the Christian movies where the chips are down and victory seems impossible, but then God intervenes and snatches victory from the jaws of defeat and the football team wins. And so God gets the glory in that because he's answered our prayers for deliverance. Yeah, he waited longer this time, but Jesus always comes through. When the chips are down, you can count on Jesus. And so we think that glorifying God through it is giving praise to God in the interview or a hearty, full-throated praise report and the, after the cancer is gone. Martha signals that this is the way that she thinks. When Jesus tells her that her brother will rise and she goes, yeah, 
I know he'll rise. I know. He'll rise in the resurrection on the last day. I don't want to read too much into that, but it sounds like she views the resurrection as a consolation prize or a parting gift. Yeah, he won't, he won't be healed here, I know, but at least he'll rise on the final day. It's not what I was after, but this is good too. It's kind of like the Christian version of, well, at least you got your health. Or, well, at least you got eternal life. Is that what Jesus came for? Well, at least you got eternal life. And then Martha in verse 22, as if uh, that, it's as if she's saying, don't worry. I still trust your abilities. I know you're going to do good. I know you'll do it next time. It's okay. I haven't lost my faith in you. We aren't ignorant of the fact that we are all going to die. If the Lord tarries, every single one of us will ultimately die. And yet we spend a considerable amount of time praying that that will not happen. We know that death, death is a fact. And as one of my old pastors said, what we take issue with is time and manner. When and how. We want it to happen on our terms, in our time. But we pray a lot for healing and deliverance from death. Does it in any way betray a misunderstanding of why Jesus came for us? Martha gets a bad rap because she is often thought to be a busybody who is always work, 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 work. Doesn't have any time to sit at Jesus' feet like Mary does. Martha's got things to do. You know, she always, she's always Martha, Martha. But here in this section, Martha has pretty good theology. She has confidence in God. She trusts Jesus. She knows that he is the son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, down in verse 27. It's interesting, if you look over in John 20, verse 31, this is the purpose, this is what John wants us to arrive at when we read the gospel. John 20, 31, but these are written, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Martha's on track here. She believes in the resurrection of the dead. The Jews had a theology for resurrection and it wasn't, it was based on scripture. It was based on scripture, John 19, 25, and Job 19, 25. For I know that my redeemer lives and at the last hour, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God when I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. Daniel 12, two, and many of those who sleep in the dust of earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So Martha, along with many Jews, believed in the hope of the resurrection. But what does that hope rest upon? Did Jesus come to give some vague, ambiguous hope for us? 
This is important for us to consider this week, this week of Christmas. Why did Jesus come? Did Jesus come to earth to signal that God hasn't forgotten about you? To show that because God sent his son, we can have confidence that somehow, some way, everything is going to turn out okay? Did Jesus come just to show that God's promises are still in force? Do we celebrate Jesus coming simply because he promises peace on earth and goodwill toward men? Martha believes that Jesus is the Christ. She believes in the resurrection. But what seems not to be clear for her is how those two things work together. In verse 25 and 26, Jesus gives the significance of his coming. Jesus came to give life and resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. As for resurrection, he describes in verse 25, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. As for life, verse 26, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you want resurrection? Believe in me. Do you want life? Believe in me. Don't just believe in resurrection. In order to believe in resurrection, you have to believe on me. If you want true life, don't believe that your, son, your brother will be raised. Believe on me. Jesus isn't some add-on to the promises of God. He is essential to them. And the means by which these promises come about, 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all of God's promises find their yes and amen in Christ. As we sang last week, he comes to make his blessings flow for as the curse is found. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection, he is the one that makes resurrection possible. As a matter of fact, there is no record of resurrection until about two weeks from now when Jesus is raised from the dead. By saying, I am life, he is saying, I'm not just hope for the dying, but I am hope for the living. You want me to ask the Father to give your brother life? I do that. But look to me, for I also give life. John 5, 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Eternal life doesn't begin when you die. Eternal life begins when you believe. Jesus says in verse 26, he connects those together, lives and believes. You are given new life through belief, John 6, 39 and 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So life and resurrection are dependent upon the Son and believing on him. And so Jesus leaves Martha with a question. Do you believe this? Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? And Martha says, yes, I believe. And so now, because Jesus loves Martha and Mary and his disciples, he is going to show them the glory of God to strengthen their belief. So let's read verses 28 through 30. 
When she, when Martha had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. So Jesus calls Mary to himself and it seems that his intention is to have a similar conversation with Mary that he did Martha. However, she's followed by many Jews who come to mourn and wail in support of the family. And so they, because they thought she was going to the tomb. And so their, 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 their talk is interrupted. But I want you to see here that Jesus is not this detached, mechanical God. He has feelings and he is affected by what he witnesses. But they may not be the feelings that you suspect he has. This moved in spirit that we see there in verse 33. He was moved in spirit. It's the same word as used in Mark 14.5 when they say, for this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. That scolded is the same word for moved in spirit here. The same word used in Mark 9, uh, Matthew 9.30 and uh, Mark 1.43, uh, where the word is translated stern warning. So this greatly troubled is used again in 12.27, when Jesus says, my soul is troubled. Now what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. And so Jesus is, the greatly troubled here is the same greatly troubled when he's, considered his re- when he's considering his resurrection. It's also the same word, greatly troubled, when he tells the disciples that one of you will betray me. So this is a, he's got a lot of emotion here. In addition, we read here in verse 35 that Jesus wept. So these are very complicated, mixed emotions. What is Jesus angry about? What's he angry about? We don't have any insight into his his reasoning here, but we can make some educated guesses. It may be because he sees all these paid mourners. It was, that was a Jewish custom that you had to have at least three, uh, I think it's three mourners and one flute player or something to help the family mourn when a loved one died. He sees all these paid mourners who were hired to mourn and so, One, either their emotion is contrived and he's put off by that, or maybe not, and he's just upset and angry because these people grieve as they have no hope because they don't understand death and they don't understand the hope of the resurrection. 
Think about what we've read up to this point. Perhaps he's angry and frustrated that those so close to him don't understand him. Don't understand what he came to do. They say, if you had been here, he would not have died. Why would that make Jesus angry? Because they failed to see that although Lazarus loved Jesus and Lazarus was a faithful Jew, Lazarus deserved to die. That is a guilty man in the tomb. The wages of sin is death. No matter how good a friend Lazarus was, he was a sinner and the penalty for him is death. He has a big problem. And these people come into Jesus saying, you could have kept him from dying. If you had been here, you would have done something about this. They want him to do something about the death problem, but they're oblivious and blind and could care less about the sin problem that caused the death problem. He's angry at the lack of understanding all the way around. He may be angry at, wow, if this man opened the eyes of the blind man, he could have certainly done something about this. The signs and miracles didn't point them to who Jesus was and why he came. The signs and miracles just pointed them to say, well, if he can do this miracle, maybe he can do something else. Think back to verses 7 and following where the, the response of the disciples where they're saying, Jesus, why on earth do you want to go back to Jerusalem? Last time they tried to stone you, save yourself. Let's don't do that. Let's stay here. And when they realize they have to go, Thomas doesn't look at following Jesus as life. What does he look at Jesus as following meaning? Death. Well, let's go. We're going to die with him. Jesus has told them over and over again that it must be, it's essential that I, may die, that I must die. And his disciples, those closest to him for three years, are blind to that fact. Perhaps he's mystified and uh, at the unbelief and the failure of his followers to see the signs. Even those with the best of theology can't see their own sin and they're in need and they can't look past the sinful nose on their face. Jesus was there in the garden when the great deceiver began his work. And now he observes how far this deception has metastasized throughout the whole world and blinded even the most faithful and caused them not to understand the Messiah, the good shepherd, standing right in front of them. He's angry at the devil and unbelief, but most certainly the emotion of compassion is also there. For we understand that Jesus came because he viewed us as sheep, helpless and harassed, Sheep without a shepherd. Why would Jesus weep? Well, when you look upon a casket or a dead body or a grave, you not only see the body or the place where it lay, but you also see the events and the decisions and the emotions behind it. As they say, a picture is worth a thousand words. Three years ago this weekend, um, I looked upon the body of my 20-year-old nephew 
who died in a, uh, as an unbuckled passenger in a one-car DWI accident. So as I looked on him and I saw the decisions that he had made that night and the stupidity and the perceived invulnerability and the regrets and the horror of the incident and the consequence of the actual and actions and the ambivalence towards sin, all of it in one glance. You just look on it and all of it comes rushing back. And so at the invitation for Jesus to come and see, Jesus, the omnipotent God, from whom nothing is hidden or unseen, looks into the situation and he weeps. He weeps for the consequences of sin. He weeps for his friend. He weeps for the children of God. None of this is in conflict with Jesus. For in him, all things are held together. No emotion dominates the rest of them. He feels them all equally. Let's read verses 39 through 40. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So Jesus orders the stone to be taken away and Martha objects, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor. Or what does the King James say, Larry? He stinketh. Jesus tells her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so he gives the, all who believe a dress rehearsal for the final day. But he begins with a prayer. Father, I thank you that you've heard me. Jesus has already been praying to the Father for Lazarus. This isn't the first time that he's interceded for Lazarus. It also shows his close communion with the Father. It also confirms the Father's pleasure with him and authenticates that the Father sent the Son in Jesus performing this act. And it shows all who are there that Jesus is from the Father and he does the Father's will. And so there will be no more question about, ah, he's got a demon. That's how he did all this because he's got a demon that we read about last week as Jesus as the good shepherd. No, Jesus starts the prayer by speaking to the Lord and saying, thank you so that they may know that you, yeah, I know that you've heard me. And so um, I, I, um, I say this for their benefit so that they may believe that you sent me. He calls them out of the tomb right away. That sign is proof that Jesus was sent. And he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man died, who had died came out with his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him 
or as the King James says, loose that man and let him go. What does this miracle teach us about Jesus? It gives us some proof that um, in confirmation of the resurrection that is to come. Jesus called his shot back in John 5, 25, when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus is showing what will happen on that final day that is to come. As a matter of fact, one commentator su suggested that if Jesus hadn't specified Lazarus come out and just said come out, the tombs would have given up all of their dead on that day. But if we only look at this and don't understand Jesus as the judge, we will miss the full reason why Jesus came. We can look at the verses above and think how Jesus will raise the dead, but we still have this pesky issue of what kind of resurrection will we experience? Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. As we already have discussed, we deserve to die. And so if our sin has somehow brought us death, what would lead us to believe that somehow we warrant or deserve the resurrection to life? That's why it is so critical for us to remember that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. They needed him to go to Jerusalem. We need him to go to Jerusalem. If, they are, if we are ever going to experience what we read about today. Jesus is going to the cross. He's the perfect spotless lamb, the Messiah, the good shepherd of Israel, as we considered last week, who goes before us in death to pay the penalty that our sin deserves, to pay the penalty that lays us in the grave. And as we considered life uh, last week, he lays down his life so that he may take it up again. He lays down his life for all who believe and trust in him. And he is raised three days later for our justification as proof that Jesus is who he said he was and that all of his promises are true and that all he said about himself is true. He makes resurrection possible and he gives life. A day is coming when he will return and call all who are in the grave and they will raise, but it will not be in grave clothes that we are raised. No, they were sowed perishable we will be sowed perishable. We will rot in the grave, but we will be raised imperishable. We are sown in dishonor. One of the things that we've considered uh, as I've talked to many of you and I've thought about people who have died, it's amazing how death is so dishonorable. How it just, it doesn't end gloriously. It ends with a whimper. 
We are sown in dishonor, but we will be raised not like this. We will be raised in glory. Now we have heard these promises for millennia and they have yet to come true. But we can look on this example and find encouragement. Lazarus was beyond hope. He stinketh. The time for acting had seemingly passed, but Jesus had not forgotten, nor had he failed to act. His timing is perfect. This should also be an encouragement to you who are praying that your children or your family will come to faith. Many of us will be spending the holidays with uh, unbelievers. Don't give up hope. The time for action is not past. God hears your prayers. It's not too late. Continue praying for and evangelizing your family members and loved ones. The sheep still hear the voice of the shepherd. This shows us the futility also of hoping in this life. Is this really the hope? Is this really what we want to have happen? If we could have whatever we want to have happen, is this really what we want? To have our loved one raised from the dead so that they can walk on earth again? Are our hopes and dreams or imaginations truly captured and being preserved? Look at Lazarus. He's all bandaged up in his burial clothes. He, he looks ridiculous. He can barely move around. He's, he's so bound up. Is that really the hope that we have for our loved ones? That they'll pre be preserved in this life? As we ourselves see that we waste away, becoming slower and slower and weaker and weaker in life. Lazarus is going to die again. As a matter of fact, you read over in chapter 12, verse 9, the plot to kill Lazarus. Lazarus is more in danger after he's raised from the dead than he was before. He's not protected from anything. He's simply been given a stay of execution. Lazarus will die again. Surely we should set our sights higher than this. Jesus came to give us life. But this isn't the life that he has in mind. Jesus says in 10.10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Eternal life begins today. Eternal life begins with knowing who Jesus is and what he came to do in believing on him. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him has eternal life. John 17, 3, this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What does love look like? We've seen it here in this passage. John describes it, uh, Jesus describes it in John 4, 21. I will love him and manifest myself to him. I will make myself known to him. This is the way that Jesus loves us on this earth, to make himself known to us. And sometimes he doesn't separate us from trial and difficulty and danger and the threats of death, but he allows us to go through those things so that it may lead to the knowledge of the glory of God and that we may see the Son of God in full glory, in more glory than we did before. 
So how does this affect the prayers that we have? The way that we pray for, pray for one another? Do we simply pray, oh Lord, keep them from illness or heal them? Or do we pray, Lord, use this illness so that they may know you better? For this reason, it was in Colossians 1.9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In order to believe on Jesus, we also see from this passage that we must be acted upon. Apart from Jesus' work, we're still in our sins. We're still those blind, ignorant, foolish, myopic people that Jesus lamented and was angry about up in 32 and following. Even those with the best theology who have pieced it together the most, who have seemed to have it all figured out apart from Jesus' gracious work on them are to be pitied. They are lost and beyond hope. But Jesus, Jesus graciously calls his people out of the tombs of ignorance. And he revealed himself to us and he gave us life. We're incapable of responding. We are dead in our transgressions and sins. But God made us alive in Christ and gave us new life by speaking a word. By speaking a word, come out. As, as, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In the lives that we now live, we live in the flesh. We live by faith in the Son of God who loves us and who gave himself up for us. And that new life is found in trusting in, trusting in and knowing the one true God. But the new life that's found isn't, um, uh, isn't found in continuing to carry on life as usual. For we look back as one who are burdened by grave clothes. So Jesus continuously calling out to us, loose that man and let him go. We stop treating our grave clothes as swaddling clothes. We stop treating our grave clothes as security blankets. We cast off our old self with its desires and its practices that lead to death and seek to put on our new selves, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So may this Christmas week be filled with thoughts, not of some vague hope that the advertisements and the Christmas specials offer, but may we think on the Savior who is to come, who is the resurrection and the life. May we place our hopes squarely on him. Let's pray. Father God, we each have our own Lazarus story. 
You've done a far more miraculous thing in us than these things that Mary and Martha revealed that they had hoped for. So Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see the hope to which you have called us. The riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints and the incomparably great power for us who believe. Who believe that you are the Son of God. Who believe that you are our life and our resurrection. Father, we ask that you would continue to refine us Continue to help us set our sights on things above and place our hopes there where you are, seated at the right hand of God. Come again, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Help us to hope on that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.